Father, we're grateful to gather this morning as the church to be together, to encourage one another, to sing these songs that are full of rich truth about you, and Lord, also to sit underneath your word. And Lord, I pray as we read your scriptures this morning that um, your spirit would just teach us and would build our faith and help us, Lord, to, to be more in love with you and to have a clearer picture of you and what you desire for us. Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally this morning give our hearts an unexplainable motivation to give our entire lives to the mission of reaching the lost. That's, that's what we're talking about in this sermon series. That's what we've been studying. Lord, would you put a motivation in our hearts to give our entire lives to this? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. What uh, or how, really, do you motivate someone to give their entire life to a certain cause or a, or a certain mission? Right? I mean, if you think about it, we have one life on, on this side of eternity, right? That's a, that's a big ask, to give your entire life to something. We only have one. How do you motivate someone to give their entire life to something? I don't know if you saw this a few years ago. There was this story that hit the news headlines. There's this Dutch company called Mars One, and their uh, objective as a company is to send and, and settle the first colony on Mars. And so they're trying to raise all, money, all the money and develop the technology to do this. And one of the things that they needed was volunteers, people who would volunteer their lives to be the first settlers in this colony on Mars. And they needed people to volunteer who would understand that you would be going to Mars, you would not be coming back, right? It's feasible that we'll have technology that will send someone to Mars. It's not feasible in the near future that we would have technology that could get someone to and back from Mars. And so, guess what? Over 100,000 people applied to volunteer, to go to Mars, never to come back. All right, so what motivates someone to literally give their entire life to this cause of, of being the first humans to settle on Mars? I was reading an article about it in Popular Science. They were interviewing some of the candidates that were selected through this, the pool of applicants that came in. And they were asking this question, like, why are you willing to do this? And most could not answer the question sufficiently. One guy said, you know, I really can't answer it rationally. He said, it's kind of like love. You just have this desire for it, but you can't really explain it. But you know what? God has designed us to desire meaning and clarity in our lives that our lives would make sense. Every part of our life would fit together and have this clarity and this meaning that I can understand, right? He's designed us to want to have focus, that our entire lives would be focused on something that we believe in and are passionate about, that's worth our time. We want our lives to have a clear reason and we wanna devote our lives to a clear purpose that literally has out of this world implications. 
And, and here's why I bring this up. Uh, we've been in this sermon series called Jesus and the Outsider over the last several weeks, and today we're going to finish that series up. And in this series, we have learned that Jesus gave the church a clear mission and a clear message, right? A clear purpose for this institution that we call the church. We are to go to the ends of the earth, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples, to proclaim the clear and complete gospel of Jesus. We've been studying how Jesus himself is our example. He, he himself reached those on the outside of the kingdom of God. And so if you missed these earlier messages in the series, I encourage you to go to our website. You can listen to old sermons online. We have a podcast you can go to. Because we've been using Jesus as our example. How did he reach those on the outside? And we've been building this theology of reaching people who do not know Jesus. But this morning, I, I wanna close this series by helping us to understand the reality that God has called us as his children and as his church to give our entire lives to reaching the outsider. And when I mean our entire lives, I mean our entire lives, our, our home life, our, our work life, our leisure, every part of our life fitting together on this mission that we've been given from God. And so how do you motivate someone to do that, to, to give their entire life to something? And, and, and I believe that we find the motivation to give our entire lives to the mission that God has given us when we realize that this mission is the very reason that we are here. If you wanna understand how your whole life fits together with a clear purpose and a clear mission and clear meaning that's attached to something that has out of this world significance, well, you find it in this mission that God has called us to be on. I mean, if God has rescued us from our sin, right, if he's redeemed us, if he, he's brought us into his family and he said, listen, you are gonna spend eternity in my kingdom, then why does God not just bring us there? Why are we still living in a broken world? Well, it's because he has a mission for us. And this morning, I want us to have a clear understanding of our role and our purpose in this life and in this world. And so to do that, I want to study a passage from the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 29. Because this passage contains an incredible promise about our future. An incredible promise about our future. But we need to be careful not to read that promise out of its context, because to do so would mean that we would not only miss the substance of that promise, but we'll also miss the instructions that God has given us while we're waiting for that promise. And so, let's go to Jeremiah 29. And let me give you a little context here of the chapter we're about to read. Uh, after the reign of King Solomon, um, the nation of Israel divided into two. So you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, right? We were just singing that song and calling uh, God the Lion of Judah. Well, Judah is that southern kingdom of Israel. It contains Jerusalem. So during these times, God appointed 
several prophets who would receive revelation from God and they would then go to God's people and deliver what God was saying to them. One of those prophets called by God was Jeremiah, and that's who wrote this book, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was tasked with warning the kingdom of Judah, that southern kingdom, that if they did not repent and turn away from their wicked ways and turn back to following God and his word, that if they didn't do that, God was gonna send in an enemy nation to defeat them and carry them into exile. In other words, God was going to remove his people from the promised land. Well, in the 590s, this is what happened. Jeremiah was prophesying and saying, you better turn, you better turn and repent or this is gonna happen. In in the 590s of BC, uh, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came in, defeated Jerusalem and Judah and in several stages carried the Judeans out into exile back to Babylon, okay? And so in this passage this morning, what's going on is Jeremiah is a prophet. He's back in Judah. He's writing a letter to the exiles, his fellow Judeans who were over in Babylon, all right? So they just got defeated. So put yourself in their shoes, right? Someone invades our country, defeats our government, puts you on a plane and sends you to another country. So you're receiving a letter from the homeland, okay? So Jeremiah is writing this letter, and and one of the reasons that Jeremiah writes this letter is because there are other Judeans who are in exile in Babylon who considered themselves to be a prophet and said, hey, I hear from God too, so I wanna let you know what God has to say. But these were false prophets, They were not hearing from God. And what they were telling the people who were in exile was, guess what? They're coming soon. You're gonna be rescued any day now. Have hope, because you're gonna be rescued any day now. And so Jeremiah, who's a true prophet of God, felt he needed to write a letter under God's direction to these exiles to let them know what God was really saying. All right, so that's, That's where we're at. That sets the stage. Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read 1 to 14. So read this along with me. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem, that's in Judah, to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem over to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem over to exile. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Sharphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. All right, so... A lot of historical details there, right? To get you to understand that this actually happened. Here's the guy who sent the letter. Here are the people in the power places. Here's our letter. It said, verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. These are the words of God. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Read that again. To all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Hear my instructions. Verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city, Babylon, where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, 70 years. Years I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So if you're in Babylon, in exile, people are telling you you're gonna get rescued soon. All right, all right. Letters coming from the homeland. What does it got to say? This is probably not the letter you wanted to read. I mean, yes, there's an amazing promise embedded inside this letter, but that promise wasn't going to be fulfilled for 70 years. Right, so the life expectancy wasn't that long then, which means 70 years means, I, oh, I'm not going to see that in my day. My children and my grandchildren will. But, but not me. And so when we look at this letter from a strictly historical perspective, we see that God is giving these promises to the Israelites as a people. All right, I'm gonna rescue your people. I'm going to bring your people back from exile and they will be restored to me, right? This wasn't an individual promise. This was a communal promise. But in the midst of all of this, God gives the individuals who will be spending those 70 years waiting for God to rescue them. He gives those people a purpose and instructions for how they are to live while they were waiting. He makes it very clear. I sent you to Babylon. I sent you there. Nebuchadnezzar did not. I sent you to Babylon and I have an assignment for you in Babylon. And so if we zoom out even further and look at this passage from just a biblical context, in, in the context of the entire scriptures, we notice that the Bible has this theme of exile woven throughout of it. Jeremiah 29 is a localized incident where God's people living in the promised land were carried out into exile by God's providence 
and given instructions from God on how they were to live in exile. And in the same way, the scriptures tell us that the church, God's people, us, we have a citizenship that is in God's kingdom. That's where we belong. Yet our lives are now being lived in exile right now in the world. Right? The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as, as followers of Jesus, our citizenship is in God's kingdom. We're here in this world waiting for him to come get us and bring us into that great promise, which is Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you future and a hope, right? My plan is for you to spend eternity in my kingdom. And so as the church, we must consider ourselves like the exiles who are waiting the 70 years for them to be rescued. Right? The Apostle Peter also makes this connection real clearly. Nick read this for us in our call to worship. If you go to 1 Peter, I want to read that for us real quick. Peter, very clearly, in chapter 1, verse 1, this is, he's writing a letter to some churches. And look at how he addresses them. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, look at this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Right, he's referring to these churches throughout the Roman Empire as exiles. And if you go over to chapter two, verses uh, nine to 12, just look at his language. He's talking to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of God, who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have citizenship in God's kingdom. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So therefore, in light of all of that, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who, don't, uh, who are unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, that they may glorify God when he comes for you. So we see the same thing in Jeremiah 29. This is who you are. You are God's people, but you are in exile. And here's how you are to live. Here is, how, here is what your purpose is while you're in exile until I come for you. Right? The very reason that we are here is because God has given his church a mission, an assignment. And our motivation to devote our entire lives to this mission comes when we realize that this is not our home. That there will be a day that God comes for us, but until then, we have a specific mission and a specific purpose to fulfill. And listen, the more we are convinced of this, the more that we see every facet of our lives through this lens that this is not our home, but I'm here on a mission, 
the more faithful and joyful lives we will live for the glory of God. Uh, I love this. This is uh, crystal clear in, in Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews 11 is this, this great passage that lists all of these faithful men and women of God, just these men and women of God who did amazing things for the glory of God, who had great faith, right? So some people dub Hebrews 11 like the hall of faith, right? It's where all the great ones get listed in Hebrews 11. But there's this great nugget of truth in Hebrews 11 that shows us what it was that fueled that faith that these men and women of God had. Look at this, Hebrews 11, verse 13 It says, these all died in faith. These great men and women of God, they died in faith. Look at this. Not having received the things promised. Not having yet tasted Jeremiah 29, 11. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. People who hold on to this promise and acknowledge that they are strangers and exiles make it clear they're seeking their homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. If we wanted to just partake of the things of the world, we could. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city that he will bring them to. Right? It is when we understand who we are, citizens of the kingdom of God and strangers and exiles here, and what we've been called to do, making disciples of all nations, that we will begin to live this life with faithfulness and joy. And you know, for this entire sermon series, we've been talking about how we as followers of Christ, how we are the insiders, right? We've been brought into the family of God in and through Jesus. Right? Just like all mankind, we had sinned against God and we don't deserve his love. We deserve his judgment. But, but God sent Jesus to save us and we've put our faith in him, right? He, he lives the life in our place, a righteous life in our place. He goes to the cross and pays for our sin in our place. And if we trust him, then our sins are forgiven and we're given citizenship in God's kingdom. We know that we'll live there forever, reconciled to God. And so as his children, all right, as citizens of his kingdom, we have been sent as ambassadors of the kingdom of God into this world to go to the outsiders to proclaim the gospel and bring them into the family of God, right? That's how we've been talking about it. We're the insiders when it comes to God's kingdom and we're to go to the outsiders. But looking at Jeremiah 29, 11 and these other passages, the reality is from the perspective of the world, we're the outsiders. We're not the insiders, we're the outsiders. We're the ones who do not belong here, but have been sent here on a mission. We are the exiles. We are the sojourners. And it's clear in Scripture that when we embrace the fact that we are exiles on assignment, that is when we can begin to find the motivation to devote our entire life to what God has called us to. Okay? So going back 
uh, in looking a little closer at at Jeremiah 29, I, I believe that we find some really key truths when it comes to how do we embrace our role as outsiders in this world. Um, So I want to give us three ways from Jeremiah 29, three ways that we embrace our role as outsiders. And so here's the first one. The first way we embrace our role as outsiders is we live an ordinary life among the lost. We live an ordinary life among the lost. Uh, In Jeremiah's letter to these exiles, uh, what was the very first thing he instructs those exiles to do? Uh, If you go to verses five and six, very first thing he says is build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may have daughters and sons. Multiply, do not decrease. In other words, settle in. Don't live your life not willing to put down roots because you're hoping one day you're gonna leave soon. Unpack the suitcase and put the clothes in the drawers, right? Build a house, meet your neighbors, get your kids in school because you're staying a while. That's what the letter was saying to the exiles in Babylon. There are some Christians who think that what the Bible calls us to do as Christians is to isolate ourselves from the world. Like we're supposed to live according to God's word, which we are, and we should not be in the presence of ungodliness lest their filth gets on us. The Bible does not call us to that. It does not call us to isolate ourselves from the world, but rather to live in and amongst the world. Live ordinary lives, have a house, get a job, do things for fun, live life in and amongst those who do not know Jesus. Interesting, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, look at this. He says, I I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10. But I'm not talking about, not at all meaning, the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. That would be a ridiculous thing to command you to do right? But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, is a follower of Jesus, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, right? Paul is saying that, hey, we're going to have problems if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you live an unrepentant life doing these other things, then there might be some issues there. But what Paul is saying is what I am not saying is I'm telling you, I'm not telling you not to associate with these people who do not call themselves Christians. No, we need to live ordinary lives amongst these people, sharing the hope that's within us. Uh, If you go back to 1 Peter 2, we, we see that Peter says that As exiles, we should live our lives in an honorable way amongst unbelievers, proclaiming the excellencies of God, right? So the call on our lives as exiles is to live ordinary lives with the lost. There's nothing special about us other than that we are children of God and we have the gospel. But in the midst of living ordinary lives, we do not conform to the ways of the world but remain faithful to the word of God. And we look for opportunities to share about the hope 
that we have in Christ. I love how Steve Timmis and Tim Chester put it in their book. They say, live an ordinary life with gospel intentionality. Three times in Jeremiah 29, verse four, verse seven, verse 14, we see that God specifically says that he was the one who sent those people to Babylon, right? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was just a pawn in God's scheme. And in the same way that God had a scheme when it comes to sending his people into exile over in Babylon, he's got a scheme in your life. His providence touches your life just as much as anyone else's life. And this means, look, that there is a reason you live where you live. There is a reason you have the coworkers you have. There's a reason you keep running into those people. There's a reason that God has you right now in Northern Virginia. Don't worry about where God will have you next year because we know right now his will is that you're in Northern Virginia. And he has called you to live an ordinary yet faithful life amongst people that are lost here. And this leads to the second way that we embrace our role as an outsider. Number two, which is this, seek the welfare of the lost. So we know that God has sovereignly placed us here in this moment, in this time, to carry out this mission. And in the midst of that, what other commands does he give us? If we look at Jeremiah 29, if you look at it, it's in verse 7. It says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So we live ordinary lives amongst the lost and we've also been called to seek their welfare. Now, I'm not a big fan of the word welfare there. The, the Hebrew in Jeremiah there is that great word shalom. Um, Shalom kind of carries a meaning of just a complete, whole peace and prosperity, right? A peace and prosperity that is complete. I mean, it touches every facet of our lives, mental, physical, spiritual, right? It encompasses all fears of justice. And so it, it makes me wonder, what does it look like for us individually to seek the shalom of our neighborhoods and our workplaces, but what does it look like for us as a church to seek the shalom of Herndon? I mean, do we as individuals and outsiders in this world pray for our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends on, on their behalf that they would find shalom, this kind of peace in their lives? I mean, just imagine with me if all of us created a habit of not only getting to know our neighbors and coworkers, but praying for them on their behalf. Think of how that would change our attitude towards them. Think of how that would change our willingness to engage them with the gospel, right? As exiles in this world and as representatives of the kingdom of God, our king has commanded us to seek and pray for the shalom of those who are lost around us. And if you wanna embrace your role as an outsider, then put some new glasses on that help you to see the people around you in a different way, right? As people that you have been called to pray for and people that you have been called to literally 
care for? I mean, what would it look like for you to see each person you encounter in the day, in your office, on the metro, in traffic, right, your neighbors, whatever it is, that, that literally we begin to see people as God has called me to seek their welfare, to literally care for them. Right, nothing will make a person more willing to hear the message of the gospel out of our lips than when they are convinced that we love them. And they're convinced that we, we care for them, like genuinely care for them. We're, we're after their joy. They may not like what we have to say, they may not accept it, but they'll respect it because of how we love them. Who in your life do you need to have a, a changed attitude towards, some, some new lenses to see them through. I think all of us could find some names to put on that list. And here's the third way. Third way to embrace our role as outsiders in this world is this. Embrace suffering and wait for prosperity. Embrace suffering and wait for prosperity. Jeremiah was warning the exiles to not listen to the false prophets who wanted to take a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, twist it and make it mean that God has promised you worldly prosperity. God makes no such promise. Doesn't mean he, don't, he won't send worldly prosperity into our lives, but he does not promise it. In fact, he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God has sent us as his ambassadors into a war zone, into a world that's been ravaged by sin. And although we have the promise of eternal life in his kingdom where there will be no more sin, we have a mission to complete here. And here we should not expect prosperity, but rather we should expect suffering. See, there's nothing wrong. I want to make this clear. There's nothing wrong with having or experiencing worldly prosperity. By global standards, we all do. But the problem is, is when we make worldly prosperity the mission, the aim, the goal, the, the purpose of our lives. Because when we make prosperity the mission of our life, we have now begun to live like an insider, in this world, and not like an outsider who carries the hope of the kingdom of God with them. So in your neighborhood, uh, in your workplace, at school, wherever you are, we have a choice to make. We can choose to live our life in such a way where we want the insiders of the world to see us as just another insider. An ordinary person who conforms to the ways of this world. Or... We can live our life knowing that we are actually outsiders sent from God to live an ordinary life, but with a mission. And listen, choosing to live your life and embracing your role and mission as an outsider means you will invite suffering into your life. Do you want people to see you as another insider or do you want people to see you as an outsider? Sharing the gospel with someone and inviting them to come to church can be risky move relationally. Right? Some people are just uncomfortable with that. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I hesitate at engaging someone with the gospel because I don't want to be seen as abnormal? 
But if we embrace our role as an outsider, we are embracing being abnormal. That's what we're doing. Uh, Living our life by putting others before ourselves and seeking their welfare above our own welfare means we're voluntarily putting others' comforts before our own comforts. Putting others' prosperity over our own prosperity. Inviting discomfort in our life out of love for others. It's embracing suffering, right? So, so another question to ask ourselves, is, am I willing to serve and love others only after my needs are met? But see, if we embrace our role as an outsider, we are putting our hope in the prosperity and comfort of God's kingdom. We're saying that my needs are met there so I can give fully of myself here. Grace Hill, we are outsiders in this world. And we are here. God has not brought us home yet because he's given us a mission. A mission in this very place at this very time. And so let me tell you this. I believe this with everything in me, that your joy is found in devoting every single cell of your body and every single part of your life to this mission. In your neighborhood, at your job, in every place, your life has an incredible purpose with out-of-this-world significance. Everywhere you go, just put this into perspective, everywhere you go, that means that the kingdom of God has one of its ambassadors armed with the gospel present. Armed with the very thing that can completely transform someone's life. And your joy is found in embracing that, just going all in, jumping into that life. It's not found in conforming to the world, but sticking out for the kingdom of God. And so let's pray for our church. Let's pray that we would be a church that would just embrace this role as outsiders and that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel and seek the welfare, the shalom of the people around us. Would you pray that with me? God, as we wrap up this sermon series, just looking at how Jesus reached the outsiders. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church just to embrace the fact that when it comes to this world, We are the outsiders. We are the ones who belong in another place. But Lord, would you help us to understand that there's just incredible significance to each and every one of our lives because of that. You have a unique purpose for each one of us when it comes to this mission and you have people that you want to bring in to the kingdom of God by using each and every one of us. And we may not know how all those pieces fit together. We have no idea how one uh, sharing of the gospel in the workplace or a kind word or seeking the welfare of someone or one invitation to church or handing out one card at the Herndon Festival. We have no idea how you might use that little act to bring about faith, maybe even decades later. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people who would realize that you are going to use us. 
If we're faithful to embrace this role as an outsider and to go after people who do not know you and love them and care for them and engage them with the gospel, you will use that for your glory and to bring people into their kingdom. Help us to have confidence in that, Lord. And Lord, help us to embrace that great promise that we find in Jeremiah 29, 11, that you, don't, you do know the plans that you have for us. Nothing will thwart those plans. Plans to give us a future and a hope. Lord, we know we are gonna spend all of eternity with you rejoicing in your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that our hope in that promise will fuel our faithfulness today. We love you, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.